Today we begin a uh, three-part series of messages we've entitled The Sealing, and I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 6 and verse 14, as we back up a few verses before the scripture reading. Today's is going to be a study of the notion of who is going to be sealed before Jesus comes. Revelation chapter 6, verse 14. This is after the sixth seal, or during the sixth seal, I should say. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place, and the kings of the earth... The great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. The scene is that Jesus is coming, the earth is shaking, the sky is rent open like a scroll, and there is a group of people that are wanting not to see the face of Jesus. They are calling for the mountains and rocks to fall on them. They want to hide from the face of Jesus. And in verse 17, the sixth seal ends with this question. You see it there in your Bible. Who is able to stand? Now, when you read the book of Revelation, there are seven seals. You have the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. And between the sixth and the seventh seal, there is what theologians and Bible scholars call an interlude. There's a pause before the seventh seal comes. And the pause is really answering the question in verse 14. Who shall be able to stand? In other words, who is going to be able to stand in the presence of God when he comes the second time? And chapter 7 answers this question. Who is the group of people that are going to be able to stand before God? Chapter 7, verse 1, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God. God on their forehead. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. This is the response to the question in verse 14 of chapter 6. Who shall be able to stand? This group called the 144,000. Chapter 7 begins with the scene of four angels. They're holding the four winds. A fifth angel comes and says, hold them until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. Now, there seems to be in our community of faith some anxiety 
about this notion of the 144,000. Isn't there? And there's several underlying trigger points of anxiety. We'll get to a few of those in a moment. But the first one is, are the 144,000 literal Israelites? Now, if you keep reading in your Bible, you'll see how these 144,000 are divided up. Verse 5, of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000. And it goes on through the 12 tribes, 12,000 from each tribe. Now, Mervyn Maxwell, the Adventist scholar, notes that ever since the Jews returned from Babylon in the 6th century B.C., some 2,500 years ago, no serious attempt, often not attempt at all, has been made to prevent intermarriage among the tribes. It is extremely difficult to conceive that there exist today 12,000 pure-blooded representatives of each of the tribes listed in Revelation chapter 7. You remember in the book of Kings, there was a division in Israel. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, caused an uproar, and ten of the tribes to the north seceded from the kingdom. It became the, the country of Israel with Samaria as his capital, and then two tribes stayed with Judah, or it became the kingdom of Judah, Judah and Benjamin. And these two coexisted for a time, and the ten northern tribes were taken away into captivity by the Assyrians and lost their national identity. The two kingdoms to the south continued on till the time of Christ. So this is a misunderstanding when it comes to the 144,000 because the Bible tells us that the New Testament Jew, according to Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one what? Inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Did you know that you're a spiritual Jew? According to Scripture, that's what it's saying. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So New Testament Israel consists of anyone that has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's what the Bible is telling us. The promises of Abraham apply to us as God's church and God's people. Now, the point of anxiety for many Seventh-day Adventists is this notion right here, one of them anyway, is the number 144,000 a literal number? And this is where the anxiety comes. What if I'm number 144,001? Huh? Lord comes to David and says, oh, I'm sorry, I've got to get my perfect round number here. You're, uh, you're lost. That's kind of a difficult thing to swallow, isn't it? And uh, what if he has 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, whatever that means, and uh, you're the extra portion there, and you don't get in. And this causes a lot of anxiety among God's people. 
Now, the significance of the 144,000 as a number is when you look at the breakdown, it is from how many tribes? It's from 12 tribes, 12,000 from each tribe. It's a square root of 12 when you look at it, and the number 12 has special significance in Scripture. You have the Old Testament church, God's people, consisted of what? The 12 tribes. The New Testament disciples were 12 as well. And according to Dr. Dukan, who's professor of Old Testament at Andrews Theological Seminary, he says that the number 12 has significance in that it means the totality of God's people. This is a symbolic number, friends. Let's not get caught up in this anxiety here. This represents God's people who are alive just before he comes. And here is another point of anxiety that people have. Are the 144,000 saved by a different means than everyone else? Some people say, oh, you know what, the 144,000? There's this assumption there. They're going to get to heaven with a little bit of their merit. (laughs) These are a special group. The elite that are going to get to heaven with something a little more than we have. When you read the Bible, and I wish that uh, we would just have this practice more and more often, just read the chapter. It says, they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. When you have to wash something that implies that it was dirty before, these are people that need a Savior. They need the righteousness of Christ. So they are saved by grace just like everyone else. So here's the question. Who are the 144,000? Simply put, the 144,000 represent God's people that are alive when he comes. That is the group that are described here. Now, when you look at this list that is described in Revelation chapter 7, this particular list of the 12 tribes exists nowhere else in Scripture. When Jacob goes through his sons on his deathbed, he begins with Reuben, the oldest, and then goes down through the different sons. But in this, it begins with Judah. Another interesting thing is that there is no tribe of Joseph found in the Bible. But here he's listed as a tribe. Reuben forfeited the birthright. Because of an egregious act, he was supposed to receive a double portion. That double portion went to Joseph through his sons. Ephraim and Manasseh became tribes. So he received the double portion. So this is fascinating because Ephraim is missing from this list. Another individual that is missing from this list is the tribe of Dan, and Bible scholars have conjectured as to why this is missing from the list of the 144,000. Here's a text that seems to indicate Ephraim's tendencies. Hosea chapter 4, verse 17, Ephraim is joined to idols, leave him alone. The other tribe that is missing is the tribe of Dan, and here is Jacob on his deathbed, going through his sons, and he mentions a characteristic that became true for the tribe of Dan in general. Genesis chapter 49, 17 through 18, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path. 
that bites the horse's heel so that the rider falls backward. One of the characteristics of Dan is that Dan was a backbiter. The individual that would smile to your face and when you're turned away, they would, you know, talk about you behind your back. That was one of the characteristics of Dan. By the way, if you have someone that's always talking about someone else behind their back, be wary. It's just a matter of time before you become the subject of their conversation when you're not around. Matter of fact, one author said one of the ways to build integrity is to defend those who are absent. You build integrity with those who are present. Dan was a backbiter. Now, it's fascinating. When you look at the tribes, we'll get to this in a moment, these are not stellar characters. Simeon and Levi committed genocide. They were murderers, but they're listed there. And God says, you know what? I'm going to leave out backbiters. And I have been in some different circles in Adventism, very conservative, very liberal. It's fascinating because I've been in some circles where they will go on the warpath for a certain standard. Huh? Just the line is drawn, the theological swords come out, brandishing, ready to go at it, all right? Stand up for a particular thing, but those same individuals would not bat an eye to bite you in the back. Tells you where God's priorities are. Matter of fact, this theme comes out again in Psalm 15, 1 through 3. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? In other words, who is going to be in the new Jerusalem? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Look at this. He who dwells uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Look at that last line. He who does not, what does it say? Backbite with his tongue. The question is asked, who is going to be in the New Jerusalem? God says, not backbiters. Now, in the hierarchy <laughs> of deadly sins considered by a community of faith, I guarantee backbiting doesn't even make the top ten. It makes the top ten in God's book. Matter of fact, this is so heinous, God says, Dan's out. Dan's not in. Dan was judgmental and critical. Genesis 49 says Dan is a judge. He had the ability of an analytical mind. He could pick you apart, and he knew every motive, at least he thought. This is a characteristic. You know, in all honesty, all of us have certain tendencies that gravitate toward Dan. And here's a quotation from Brene Brown that struck a chord in my heart. We are often motivated by a need to compare ourselves favorably with the people around us. We tend to judge others in areas where we feel most vulnerable or not good enough. In these moments, we take unconscious refuge in the thought, at least I'm better than someone. 
Research tells us that we judge people in areas where we're vulnerable to shame, especially picking folks who are doing worse than we're doing. If I feel good about my parenting, I have no interest in judging other people's choices. If I feel good about my body, I don't go around making a fun of others, people's weight or appearance. We're hard on each other because we're using each other as a launching pad out of our own perceived shaming deficiency. She goes to the solution. It starts with showing compassion for ourselves only when we feel comfortable with our own choices and embrace our own imperfections when we stop feeling the driving need to criticize others. I have seen churches torn apart through judgmentalism and criticism. One district that I'll go unnamed, I, re- I received papers that were served to me by members' lawyers threatening that if I did not fork over $10,000, they were going to sue me. And the whole context was we were like, look, you just need to stop tearing apart our church. She resorted to the legal aspect. This is really a condition. You remember Adam and Eve when they ate the fruit? The immediate consciousness that they had was they recognized they were what? They were naked. And what did they do? Try to cover themselves. Then when God came around and said, hey, what happened? They felt their shame and then went to blame. Adam said, the woman made me do it, right? woman said, the serpent made me do it, and ultimately they were blaming God. It's It's a coping mechanism for our own depravity. It really is, because we just can't handle the ugliness inside. And the solution is, is the cross. I read this powerful editorial by Clifford Goldstein, and he said, you know what? The cross is like therapy, because it's the only place that we can afford to take off our masks because it is safe to come to grips with our own depravity and be real with ourselves because at the cross, it's, it's safe. It tells us how much God loves us, but also at the same time shows us the exceeding sinfulness of sin. We can, we can take it off. And it's only from that vantage point that we can have compassion on everyone else. Amen? I need this. Amen? By the grace of God. We all need therapy. Ministry of healing, moving on very quickly. Evil speaking is a twofold curse, falling more heavily upon the speaker than upon the hearer. He who scatters the seeds of dissension and strife reaps in his own soul the deadly fruits. The very act of looking for evil in others develops evil in those who look. By dwelling upon the faults of others, we are changed into the same image. The irony, by talking about the faults of others, we become what we behold. 
She goes on, cultivate the habit of speaking well of others, dwell upon the good qualities with whom those you associate and see as little as possible of their errors and failings. When tempted to complain of what someone has said or done, pray something in that person's life or character. Leslie Harding, Bible scholar, says, Dan was a backbiter like a serpent in the path. He bit the horse's hooves critical. He knew exactly why everyone did everything, or at least he thought. Sadly, it was usually the wrong motive. If you happen to be a Dan or if you happen to know someone who is a Dan, start praying for yourself or him. You want to have your name changed. Amen. There is no gate in the New Jerusalem named for Dan. Christ says, I will give you a new name. It's interesting that one of the characteristics of the 144,000, the 144,000 are described as having no deceit found in their speech. Jesus is described as having no deceit found in his mouth as well. Now, when you look at these tribes, there is actually a lot of hope that we can draw out of this because even though Dan is missing, and as Leslie Harding said, we can receive a new name, the tribes are not stellar examples, minus Joseph. God could have named the gates of the New Jerusalem something much different. He could have said, Daniel... Joseph, Elijah, Enoch, right? (laughs) Yeah, these are the gates. But he goes down through and says, you know what? Judah. And if you read the Bible, before Judah's conversion, not very good. When you read Reuben, desecrated the family name. Simeon, Levi, committed murder. The Shechemites were killed in cold blood. This was a dysfunctional family. Let me put a graph here of the family of Jacob. The epitome of dysfunction. It looks like a reality show. Jacob, you know the story, deceives his brother, then he gets deceived. Imagine the wedding night. He thinks he's getting Rachel. He wakes up in the morning to Leah. And he marries Leah. And this caused a lot of dysfunction in the home. Sister wives who were rivals, who were always jockeying for who loved me more. Leah was the one that was second class. And so she prays to God and says, give me a son. And so they go on this race for who is going to have the most children. And Rachel goes to Jacob and says, give me children or I die. And the Bible tells us Jacob got mad and said, am I God? I mean, this is the dysfunction. And so Rachel gets a bright idea and says, you know what? My servant, Bilhah, have children through her. So Jacob, (laughs) okay, has kids through her. And then Leah's like, wait a minute, this is not fair. My servant Zilpah have children through her. So this is the environment that these boys, poor girl, Dinah, that, that they grew up in. 
Just the animosity and the jealousy and the vitriol and the bitterness. These were hardened men to the place that they it didn't even cross their conscience. They sold their own half-brother as a slave. And so, when God comes to the 144,000 who people have misconceived as these people that get to heaven on their own merits, he says, ah, 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 these are coming from these tribes. In other words, these are the natural characteristics that these individuals are going to come from. And the message of hope is this. It doesn't matter what kind of dysfunction, I should say, to God, it doesn't matter what type of dysfunction you are born into. He says, you know what? I'm going to take all of that dysfunction, all of those issues, all of those flat spots. Do you have idiosyncrasies? I'm going to raise my hand right here. Do you have character flaws? Do you have issues that drive your family crazy? Drive your husband, wife crazy? You have just these foibles and these flat spots and these issues, just depravity. You were just born into it. We're all born into a mess. We all have issues. We're all broken in a way. And God says, you know what? I'm going to take that, symbolized by this dysfunction, and by grace, I'm going to transform you. I'm going to transform you so much that you're going to look like me. Amen? By grace. By grace, that's the beauty of the 144,000. That God can take anyone with any dysfunction, with any issue, with any problem, with any family background, with any genetics, with any parents that did not reflect the character of God and say, you know what? I'm going to make something beautiful out of this. Wow. Look at this. Revelation chapter 21. And he carried me away in, his, in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, with 12 angels at the gates. And listen to this. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. A testament that, you know what? With all of our problems and dysfunction, there is a gate for you. Amen? There's a gate for you. Named after whatever characteristic that we struggle with, he says, you know what? This is your gate. Come on in. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you today for grace.
Lord, we need you as never before. We are born into dysfunction. We've been hurt. We hurt other people because we ourselves are hurting. And Lord, in this mire of the pit of sin, we thank you for the message of hope of the 144,000. That you can take something so depraved and make it a new creature. You can transform us by your grace. And today, Lord, we just want to thank you for who you are. That you can work in us and through us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. And I'm just wondering if there's someone here today that wants to say, Lord, (laughs) I just want to ask that you work this miracle of grace in me. You know, this is a plea that he never says no to. And if you want to say that, Lord, just raise your hand and say, Lord, I want you to work this miracle of grace in me. God bless you. Father, you see these hands, seal them with your spirit. We thank you that what you have started in our lives, you'll be faithful to complete. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.